And our verses are uh, beginning at verse 18 and go through verse 29 of the 12th chapter of the book of Hebrews. Whatever might be said about our Heavenly Father, He is a mystery. And we like to have God in little packages that we can understand and get Him in a neat little package, but He's incomprehensible. And sometimes uh, analogies help in our understanding of God, especially analogies of contrast. But still, even the best analogy of what God is and what He is like leaves us empty and uncertain and unfulfilled because really God, even though we want to put Him under a magnifying glass and get Him in manageable terms, God is awesome and incomprehensible and cannot be reduced to an equation. And so oftentimes because we do not understand Him, we push Him aside and we live in a world absent of God. And because we do not understand Him, we live as though He did not exist. If you look sometime at what the, these verses, this passage how it describes or what it calls Him. You see that it calls Him the living God, the judge of all, and a consuming fire. And these are all perhaps just descriptive terms of a God that no man can describe. Or how do you comprehend the incomprehensible? It's necessary to, to do just a brief review because the book of Hebrews is so difficult to understand. But just to review chapter 12, it's about life as a race. We're running a race, and he describes life as a race that we run. And there is need for endurance. Some are falling by the wayside. Some are giving up. It happens. There is this, this attrition that exists even among young people and among people of God this falling away, this no longer hanging in there kind of idea. And there is need for endurance to hang in there. We don't need superstars as much as we need endurers in the Christian life. And one reason why we need endurance, that's the theme of chapter 12, is, is found in verse 11 because of the discipline of life. It says, in essence, that the race is rugged. And so we're told, and to, told to strengthen the knees and and bear up under and have endurance. And he says in verse 15 that we're not to come short of grace, for this is a grace kind of race. We don't live by the law, we live by grace. And then we come to verse 18, and we read some strange words, for you have not come to a mountain that may be touched, and to a blazing fire, and to darkness and gloom and to whirlwind, and to the blast of a trumpet and the sound of words which sound was such that those who had begged, had heard begged, that no further word should be spoken to them. For they could not bear the command, if even a beast touches the mountain, it will be stoned. And so terrible was the sight that Moses said, I am full of fear and trembling. And we wonder what he's talking about. I mean, what is this language about a mountain and a whirlwind and a storm. Well, he's describing scenery in the race. 
and he uses symbolical words. When you sing a hymn, the hymns that we've sung tonight are hymns that use symbols and poetry. And so he's using symbols, and he makes reference to Mount Sinai, and it's a symbolical reference to the law. It was there at Mount Sinai that God gave the law. And what he is saying in symbolical, profound, symbolical language is that in this race that you're living, in this life you're living, you're not living on the basis of the law. You're not living under the law. You're not to fear because you've not come to the mountain of fear. Sinai was the mountain where the law was. Uh, was where the law was given. He said, you've come to Mount Zion. It's the mountain of grace. It's a grace operation. You don't live your Christian life on the basis of rules and restrictions and regulations. You don't live your Christian life on the basis of the law. I think really understand what he's talking about. I need you to, have, need you to turn with me to the book of Exodus, chapter 19, where this, where this comes from. And you remember, of course, that after wandering in the wilderness, they came on in verse 1 of chapter 19 to Mount Sinai. Look at what it says. In the third month, after the sons of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that very day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. When they set out from Rephidium, they came to the wilderness of Sinai and camped in the wilderness, and there Israel camped in front of the mountain. And Moses went up to God, and the Lord called to him from the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the sons of Israel. Skip with me to verse 10. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow, and let them wash their garments, and let them be ready for the third day, for on the third day the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. And you shall set bond, bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. Verse 16. So it came about on the third day when it was morning that there were, there were thunder and lightning flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. On your way back sometime to this text, you be sure and look at Romans 8, chapter 8, verse 10, that marvelous passage where it says that we have not the spirit, a spirit of fear, but we have been given the spirit of adoption whereby we cry, Father. Now what happened at Mount Sinai was that when God gave the law and when He came down on Sinai, it was a frightening terrifying experience. Moses said in Deuteronomy that as God drew near the mountain, he trembled in the awesome presence of God. And that's the response people have to the law. The law produces fear and the, uh, the awareness of our inadequacy and our lack of preparation. And so he's saying, now when you run in the race, you don't have to run scared in our vernacular. You can run secure and smart and safe. For in this race that's run in the, in the attitude and atmosphere of grace, there is freedom. You're secure. You don't have to worry about God, you know, uh, like some cosmic policeman with a club and keeping you in line. That's not the way the Christian life is to be lived. 
It's not to be lived in the fear of keeping this rule and following this regulation. It's the life of grace and there's freedom and security and safety there. But when people have the freedom of grace under which to live, there is a tendency to take God for granted. And there's a tendency to change things. Now that I'm free and there are no boundaries, I have a tendency to, to treat God as though God did not exist. And so there is this final warning in verses 25 through 29 because he knows the tendency of the part of the man who runs his race in grace. Now, now, now be sure to get all this background because here we come to the thesis of this passage. On the one hand, you have this concept of God that he's kind of a cosmic policeman that's just looking for an opportunity to catch you doing something wrong and club you over the head for it. That's one concept people have of God. And they live in terror of Him, in trembling and fear of Him. In, in the awesome presence of God, they tremble and terror, are terrified. On the other hand, there is this kind of an easygoing nonchalantness about God. comes right straight out of Hollywood. One of the uh, Hollywood movie stars once said, He's a living doll, this good old buddy concept of God. He's kind of like some kind of a grandfather who just kind of uh, uh, allows us to do whatever we want. So on one hand, we have this concept of God as a cosmic policeman on the... ...nine as a warning for those of us who have that kind of feeling about him. And he says this, and I want you to nail this down, in essence, his covenant may be new, but his character is the same. His covenant may be new, but his character is the same. And he gives a warning that has two sides. Look at verse 25. See to it that you do not refuse him who is speaking... For if those did not escape when they refused Him who warned them on earth, much less shall we escape who turn away from Him who warns from heaven. God's covenant may be the same, may be different, but His character is the same. Now, you're no longer, and I'm no longer living under the law. But He's saying, see to it that you don't refuse Him. Don't think that His authority, there is less authority from His voice now than at Sinai. We, we want to, we, 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 we think that, that because God loves us and He extends His grace to us, that, that we can put Him in manageable terms and we can live like we want to live. He said, don't ever think that. He's the same God who caused Moses to tremble at Sinai. Look at the intensity of this. He says, that, And his voice shook the earth then, but now he has promised, saying, Yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heaven. Now what is he referring to when he's talking about shaking the earth? Well, there had been this 
upheaval that had taken place to the, to the Jews in the author's day. They had depended on the temple, and God shook the temple. I mean, He shook it to the ground. They had, they had depended on the law, and God shook the law, removed the law. They depended on the priesthood, and God had did away with the priesthood. There had been this shaking of everything they had, they had fixed their lives on, and, and the foundations were coming out from underneath them. And the author of the book of Hebrews said, God is no different. As a matter of fact, He's going to shake not just the heaven but the earth. He's the same kind of awesome God. Uh, Wilbur Price said, this is kind of the concept of some of us. He said, give me three dollars worth of God, please. Not enough to explode my soul or disturb my peace. Just enough to equal a cup of warm milk or a snooze in the sunshine. I don't want enough of him to make me love a black man or pick beats with a migrant. I want ecstasy, not transformation. I want the warmth of the womb, not the new birth. I want a pound of the eternal in a paper sack. I'd like to buy $3 worth of God, please. I'll take that plastic Christ. No, not the flesh and blood one. He's the dirty little Jew that smells of the barn. He will keep me from the hairdresser and make me hate, make me late for the cocktail party. He'll soil my lemon, linens and break my strand of matched pearls. I can't put up with pundits from Persia or sweaty shepherds tramping over my nylon carpet with their muddy feet. My name isn't Mary, you know. I want no living, breathing Christ, but one I can keep in his crib with a rubber band. I'll take that plastic Christ. What Wilbur Pierce is saying in powerful terminology is, that because we are people of grace, we think we can just take $3 worth of God and get by with that. Listen to me carefully. Do you think a God of purity will get along with anything less than purity from you and from me? Do you think a God of holiness will be content with anything less than holiness in your life? Do you think that just because we don't live under the law any longer that God does not demand the tithe? Do you think that a God of righteousness will accept any kind of level of commitment less than a level of commitment that puts righteousness at the center of one's goal of living? God is no different. He said, now you've come to the Mount Zion, the Mount of Grace, but look, God is the same God who demands the best from man. As a matter of fact, grace demands the best gift. Grace requires the deeper commitment. When I know the Lord in a grace relationship and I walk with Him intimately, then God deals with me deals in my life with all that stuff that nobody can see. I mean, my responsibility to God living in grace is greater than when I lived under the law because God does not just deal with externals in my life. He deals with internals and attitudes and disposition and spirit. And so to live and run my life around the Mount of Zion is to live a life that demands everything from me. 
Look at verse 28. Therefore, since we have received a kingdom which cannot be shaken, let us show gratitude by which we may offer to God an acceptable service with reverence and awe. Let me ask you two questions. Do you tend to use grace as an excuse for not taking God seriously? The second question, how significant is God to you? And I think he gives us a clue in verse 28, and that clue is this, that the way a person is to live now that he doesn't live under the law is to live in gratitude for what God has done for him. Sometimes I go out in EE visitation and I talk to people about being saved and the whole emphasis is on the fact that heaven is a free gift. It cannot be earned or deserved. And every time the question comes, well, if you can't earn salvation, if you can't earn God's righteousness and God's pardon and God's forgiveness, then that must mean that you don't have to live for God. What does it mean? Well, the answer that I always give, and I believe it's the answer that's at the heart of New Testament grace, is this. That rather than living for God in, in order to earn His favor, I live for God in gratitude because of His favor. And that's what the author of the book of Hebrews is saying. He's saying, now this is how to run your race. This is how to live your life is to live it in gratitude for what God has done for you. To live it in, the grati in gratitude of the fact that God has accepted you just as you are and God has received you just as you are and God doesn't put you away when you do wrong and you live in gratitude for that. How significant is God to you? Let me ask you the second way. If suddenly and silently God left you, how long would it be? before you missed Him. If God suddenly and silently left you, how long would it be before you missed Him? How seriously do you take His counsel? Someone told a story about Teddy Stallard. He was in the fifth grade. His teacher didn't like him because he wasn't a good student. He had this kind of a blank stare, and he didn't really apply himself, and he's always disheveled and dirty. And every answer he gave was just a one kind of a one-syllable answer to every question. It's just one of those little... And so the teacher found a kind of a perverse joy in marking big X's on his paper, and, and when she put an F at the top of his paper, she did it with a flare. Some of you teachers know the kind of kids I'm talking about. She ought to have known better because she had the reports that had come down to her about Teddy Stallard. First grade. Teddy shows promise with his work and attitude. But he has a poor home situation. Second grade. Teddy could do better. His mother is seriously ill. He gets little help from home. Third grade, Teddy is a good boy, but too serious. He's a slow learner. His mother died this year. Fourth grade, Terry is very slow. Teddy is very slow. His father shows no interest. 
it came Christmas time and all the kids were bringing presents. Teddy brought his. It was just in a little old box wrapped up with brown paper and tied with and, and, and sealed with, with the scotch tape. When the teacher opened up, Miss Thompson opened up the package. Out fell an old rhinestone bracelet with half the rhinestones gone and some cheap perfume and the kids laughed. Miss Thompson had enough sense to immediately take that old cheap perfume and put some on her wrist and say, oh, doesn't that smell great? Doesn't that smell so good? And all of a sudden the children caught on what the teacher was doing and they were oohing and on. And the class was over and the kids left and Teddy ling lingered behind. This is what he said to Miss Thompson. You smell just like my mother smelled. And her bracelet looks so good on you. I'm glad you liked it. And when he went out of the room, Miss Thompson got on her knees and asked God to forgive her. The next day when the children came, she was a different person. And the school year went by and Teddy began to improve and his grades got better and better. And he got out of her class with flying colors. She didn't hear from Teddy for a long time. One day she got a letter. Miss Thompson, I graduated second in my class from high school and I wanted you to be the first to know. Four years later, she got another letter. Miss Thompson, I graduated first in my class. The university's been difficult, but I made it, and I want you to be the first to know. Four years later, she got another letter. said, <clears throat> by now I'm called Theodore Stallard, M.D. I'm getting married this month, 27th to be exact. I want you to come and sit where my mother would sit if she were alive. My dad died this year, and she went because she deserved it. And she sat where Teddy's mother would have sat if she had been living because she gave him something that he would never forget, and he lived the rest of his life in gratitude for it. Let me tell you something. What the Christian life is all about, kids, what the Christian life is all about, older kids, is that God has done something for you and for me in grace in an undeserving attitude and action that we should never forget. And we often do. And because we can never get over it and because we can never forget it, we're going to live the rest of our life as though we were living under the law. And that is, we're going to do everything that God wants us to do. That's the Christian life. It's running around Mount Zion. And as we're running around Mount Zion, it stands there as a monument to the fact that we owe the rest of our life to a God who loved us and accepted us just as we are. And even though God gives us grace with which to run the race, that race does have a mountain. It's not wide open spaces. And that grace of God demands more than what God gets from most of us. And I have a feeling that if some of us, if we had the law and we had to live by the law, that some of us, 
would be a whole lot better than we are. But I want us to nail down and be sure that we understand that because God has called us and saved us in grace, that demands even more from us than the law. Because God's still the same. And if He's a holy God, He demands holiness from us. And if He is a righteous God, He demands righteousness from us. If He is a pure God, He demands purity from us. And that's the least we could offer. Let's bow and pray. Father, I thank You for reminding us tonight that even though we do not live under the law, demands of God are still the same. And even though we do not have to live our life in fear, yet there is the same respect and commitment and devotion and reverence that you deserve and must receive. And I pray you'll forgive us because we so often lay aside and push aside the God we can't see live as though He did not exist. And I pray You'll keep on reminding us, Father, of what You've done for us and what You expect from us. For I pray in Jesus' name and for His sake. I suppose in every service there is always a need to give opportunity for people to be saved and rededicate their life and join the church. There have been times when I have said to myself, and you know, I don't believe I'll give an invitation tonight. And yet just gave an invitation, felt impelled to do that, and people come. I want to give you an opportunity tonight to rededicate your life to Christ. Maybe you've experienced something on the young people on the trip that needs to be made public. Or maybe you as parents or as adults have need tonight to rededicate your life to Christ. Or there might be some here who have never trusted Christ for the first time. You want to come to be saved. While we stand to sing, we invite you to come.